Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, it's a race for the title of Slammer of the Year, our grand finale special event held at the Meridian Speedway on September 25th, 2018. During an extended break, our storytellers took to the fast track where audience votes powered them across the finish line. Congratulations to our top three, Alicia Dodson, Kate Beltane, and Becca Watkins, who told a two-minute story on winning or losing before our pit crew picked the most roadworthy to walk away with the title of Slammer of the Year. But first, our featured storyteller, Janice Witherspoon, starts off with a life at the racetrack. Buckle up, it's story time. So my dad has a real problem with bringing too many cars home. But this is kind of what you get when you have a mechanic for a father. I just remember our first home had the longest gravel driveway and it was filled to the brim with cars or motorcycles or a go-kart that just was there for some reason. But what I used to get really excited was when he would bring home things for me. I can still remember the first small little red motorcycle that he pulled out of the back of his van, and I can remember the terrified look on my mother's face, but I mainly remember that feeling of being really excited by the thought of getting to be on something that's a little bit dangerous and a little bit fast, but just mainly excitement under all of that. But one of the best things that I can ever remember my dad bringing home was a junior dragster. So a junior dragster basically looks like a long triangle that's a couple of inches off the ground. It's got two small wheels up front, two bigger wheels in the back, and a slightly higher powered lawn engine motor in the very back. And the driver sits directly ahead of that. Now, it's just an open spot in there with the roll cage over the top, and they are built for children. So I got this junior dragster when I was eight years old. And a big part of the junior dragster experience, especially if you're about to put a kid in it, is to make sure that they're super safe. So that's why they have the roll cage over the top and why I had a giant duffel bag that was just filled to the brim with safety materials. What did this look like? It looked like long pants, closed-toed shoes, a flame-retardant jacket, gloves, a full-body harness that goes over the shoulders, over the waist, and through the legs that attach to two wrist restraints. So that way, if you do manage to roll over the car, your hands don't get smashed. On top, you're wearing a neck brace and a helmet, all strapped just a couple of inches off of the ground. And I thought that this junior dragster was very appropriate and I think my parents really agreed to that and that's why they brought it home because of the character associated with it. There is always a mythos I would say that's attached to every different type of car. If you've ever been out to Firebird they can you, you see they have decorations for the different kids personalities. Some kids have Hello Kitty, some just have horses on the side. Mine had blue flames with a purple outline that said in big bold letters Miss Attitude. And as someone that was oftentimes required to sit outside of the classroom because she couldn't stop talking, it was really fitting. 
And at this point in time, there were exactly two places that you could actually race. There's Firebird, which is just a little bit further out here, out in Emmett, um, which is the big official track. And a new track had just sprung up down where, near where I lived in Twin Falls, and it was called High Desert Speedway. Holding true to its name, it was mostly desert. There were about two paved parts, the actual road that you drove down and then the return road where you would put your car up on. The rest of it is just dust absolutely everywhere at the end of the day. And there were two junior drivers at this time because how many parents are going to select their kid into a car that is supposed to go a lot faster than you would ever want an eight-year-old going? And I remember my, my main competitor was this girl named Jordan and she had a hippie rainbow junior dragster. And I remember it vividly. And you would too if you had to sit as long as I did and watch this car get closer and closer to the finish line while you aren't allowed to move. That's because of the way that drag racing is set up. Technically, you are supposed to factor in everything about how fast your car is going to go. Is the wind blowing? How hot is it today? How much is it going? Like, how hot is my engine? How long did I just last run it? And guess, down to a hundredth of a second, how fast you're going to go. And if both of you are accurate, and they are supposed to let you go at a time that you would both reach the finish line at the same time. Jordan's car ran six seconds slower than mine. Six seconds doesn't feel like a lot of time. But when you are sitting there... <laughs> in over 80 degree weather, full on gear and a full body harness inches off of 100 degree asphalt, you remember what that car looks like. And drag racing isn't something that I've set down or put aside as I've gotten older. And that's kind of one of the things that's really nice that I've recognized that my family hasn't really changed from that. We still are continuously acting like a crew and everybody's got their different part in it. My mom is really good at making sure that everything that is not drag racing is taken care of. She makes sure we have food, she makes sure that we have water, and she has gotten so excellent at dealing with three crabby, angry people that just lost first round. Um, and my dad is really the crew chief of all of us because he always knows everything that's going to happen. When you take the kind of energy and focus that he has and you apply it to something, you get really good at it which is why he's really become the coach of everybody that kind of figures it out and kind of sets it forward. So at this point, I am driving a 1964 Ford Falcon that I had the great honor and privilege of building with my dad. And it is the exact same car that he used to race when I was a little kid. And I always wanted to have the exact same type of car that he did. And that's a lot of the reason that I keep up with it. Right now, I'm a senior in college. And I do a lot of the things associated with that. Like I'm on a speech and debate team. I'm in different weird, annoying clubs and honor societies and the obnoxiousness that's associated with that academic sphere. And sometimes I think that there's a little bit of sneering that happens there. Why is somebody that is high up in an academic sphere interested in something that could be regulated to people that enjoy redneck jokes and Jeff Foxworthy regularly? There's a, little, there's a lot of sneering that is associated with that. But the most important thing that I figured is that there really isn't a finish line for me to cross with this. There isn't a point when I've decided I've had enough of drag racing or had enough of this racing experience. Because the part of me that got so excited at seeing that first little red motorcycle 
that loves to race and loves to compete and wants to do better and be better than I ever was before is the part of me that comes from my dad. And it is the part that I am always desperately trying to hold on to because I think sometimes that that, that is just one of the better parts of me that makes me a good person. So I'm never gonna really cross a finish line where I'm ready to set down this racing because after all this time, it's become a way to hold on to those roots and to really acknowledge and honor that part of me. Felicia Machina Dotson is our first finalist. So I bought my house in 2013. I took possession of it in February. So there was still snow and that very first year the grass came up and it was so nice and it was so green. There's an apple tree in the middle of the yard and right in the corner separating me from the crackheads was a gigantic tree getting choked out by ivy. I'm kind of particular about my yard and I really, really enjoyed it. But as the spring wore on, I noticed that all these little baby trees were coming up in my yard. And I could tell just by looking at them, they were small ones from the big one. It was sending up all these shoots. It was like, help me, help me, I'm dying. So I need to plant myself somewhere else in my lawn. I would tweak out on my yard, not really on drugs, but I'd go out there and I would just nitpick and I'd pick them all out. And then I'm like, okay, this isn't working. I want to bomb the yard, but I can't kill the grass. I need to keep the grass. My neighbors didn't care. They had a jungle. It was coming up under their foundation. Their entire property is just covered up with these trees that are now like 15 feet tall. And I wasn't having any of that. After two years, I finally caved. I was going to beat this tree. I'm going to cut it down. So I hired, I hired some, some workers and we cut the tree down. I missed a date because I was cutting down this tree, but I was taking no chances that I was going to lose. I'm going to kill it for sure. So I had my roommate take a drill, you know, about this long. I'm not quite sure where he got it. He had a bunch of really random stuff. <laughs> and he drilled into the stump because they left, you know, about four foot section because it was about this big around. Drilled into it. And I'm like, I'm going to nuke this thing to kingdom come. I got stump killer and I poured it in there. I'm like, that's not good enough. I'm making sure it's going to die. Five gallons of bleach. I pour it into the stump. I had this personal vendetta and I was not going to lose. I felt so triumphant after I dumped the last gallon of bleach in there. I'm like, all right, next year it'll be great. There won't be any little trees. I felt victorious. A couple weeks later, I go to my boyfriend's house. We go in the backyard to sit in the hammock. And what's growing back there? The same kind of tree. It was like mine made a little brother just knowing I was going to be in that backyard. Becca 100 Watkins. When I was in school, I was a competitive swimmer. But I wasn't the best one. I was always like third or fourth best. And so I was a scrapper. So I was the one that had to swim the races uh, that after the fastest people were seated, I had to swim the races for the points. So that meant sometimes I swam races that I wasn't really good at. I swam all the strokes. Or sometimes I had to swim by myself. Because if the other team didn't have somebody to compete against, I was the one that was going to swim that event so that my team could get the points. So I'd have to do races alone. 
So one time I had to do the 200 fly. And if you don't know what that stroke is, it's this one, which I'm limited by my jacket. But yeah, it is the worst stroke. It's awful. So I get up on the block, and I take my position. Between my legs, I see the cute boy that I have a crush on. The buzzer goes off, and I dive in, and immediately my goggles go to my chin. I hit the wall, and I do a flip turn, and immediately my suit goes up my, can I say ass? <laughs> ass. Well, I got six more laps like this. So my moon is hitting, I can't see the wall, and so my flip turns are messed up. My moon's like breaking the surface every time. But I'm going to still finish the way that my coach taught me, and that is finish strong at the end. And that means when you are on your last lap, before you get to the wall, about four or five strokes, maybe halfway, you take, you take your last breath, and then you finish to the wall with no breath, and you finish fast. So I took my last breath, <gasps> but it wasn't air, it was water. It was all water. So then I started doing the one arm butterfly, and then the other arm butterfly, and then the no arm butterfly, and I ended up coming into the wall vertical. And I remember reaching up to touch the wall like this, and I see the cute boy, and that's how I won the race that I lost, because I was the only one in the pool. Car number eight, Kate Butane Beltane. So a couple of years ago, I took my dog Olaf to the Meridian Dog Park, which is just around the corner from here. And uh, my dog is an 80 pound white fluff ball. Um, and his favorite food is underwear. And he's <laughs> I've never caught him eating it. Like, I can't catch him. But sometimes on the way out, he has problems. We just went through this yesterday. I'm not even joking. I just woke up. I was so upset. And uh, so you have to kind of help him with that. So, yeah. So we're at the Meridian Dog Park. And, you know, my dog immediately takes off. And I'm talking to people. There's, like, this cute guy. And I'm talking to him. And he asked me which dog is mine. And I, I scan the field for my dog, find my dog, point to him. And I see my dog doing like the pre-circle thing, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I grab a couple of dog bags and start walking over to my dog, who does like the squat, squat and like hardcore stare. Like, and I'm I'm walking towards him. And as I get closer, I see panic just set into his eyes. And I'm like, no, no, I am not, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm gonna have to pull underwear out of his butt. <laughs> And I get closer to him, and as I get closer, he goes into full-on panic mode, which means that he is running around in circles doing the arr, 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 right? So now we've got everybody's attention in the Meridian Dog Park. And, he, and as he stands up, I realize that it's not underwear that he's eaten. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but it is long, it is stringy, and it is brown. And I, I actually freak out. I'm like, oh my gosh, do I need to take him to the hospital? Like, what has he eaten? So I like run up to him. I don't even put anything on my hands and I just start grabbing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Start grabbing, just pulling this out. Like, and I'm just freaking out. And it seems like it's forever. Like, you know those magic tricks where like the <laughs> handkerchief? Yeah, right? Like that's what this felt like. I'm just like never ending. And I'm like panicking. Well, eventually, you know, it 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 does stop. And 
two things happen simultaneously. One, my dog is magically just fine and runs off to go play with other dogs. And I realize what I've just pulled out of, yeah. And I drop it to the ground. And uh, I'm standing there with everyone in the Meridian Dog Park watching me, including said cute guy. And I realize that I have just magic tricked pantyhose out of my dog's bum. <laughs> and if that's not winning in life, I really don't know what is. All right. This has been an exciting journey for this person. The judges, uh, there was quite a bit of conversation and uh, reflection and a little bit of journalism happening. And they came to the conclusion that one of the things they appreciated about this uh, storyteller was the two extremes of the content of the story. We went from something very emotional to something long and stringy. Ladies and gentlemen, the slammer of the year is car number eight, Kate Beltane. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Anna Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Nick Warden, Frankie Barnhill, Terry Lawrence, and me, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you to the Slammers and the Slam media sponsor, Radio Boise. Finish Line was directed by Amanda Rich. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari and featuring live music from Adam Shavaria. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. To become a storyteller, send an email to story at storystorynight.org. 